I mean, how amazing would it be if there was a, a an outdoor shop? You know, if, if all those, if CVS all of a sudden became an outdoor company, I mean, that's that's what we're driving at. If you're a fan of the show, you probably understand that time outside makes you feel better. In fact, you've probably built it into your schedule. A little time outside every day keeps the doctor away, right? But what's going on here? Why does it work? It is unbelievable that being near a tree or being in a public space could be part of the solution. On today's episode, we bring you three guests who are working on advancing nature as a public health solution. I'm your host, Ben Shank. You're listening to Mountain Meister. Hey, quick heads up before we get things started on today's episode. We had three very busy people all joining from different locations, and the sound quality isn't the best at times. Also, there's some typing and background noise in certain parts of the interview. Shouldn't be too big of an issue, but just a heads up. Also, thanks to the support from the American Alpine Club for today's episode. With a membership to the club, you gain access to a national network of over 16,000 climbers in support of education and healthy climbing landscapes. Join today at AmericanAlpineClub.org. Use the code MEISTER at checkout for a free AAC gift. And now, on to the show. Joining us on the show today are three distinguished guests who are working on advancing nature as a public health solution. So much so that one day a doctor might prescribe you minutes of Yosemite instead of milligrams of Xanax. Stacy Bear is a veteran and director of Sierra Club Outdoors. Stacy, welcome to the show. Good to speak to you again. Thanks for having us on, Ben. Craig Anderson is a postdoc researcher and fellow at UCSF VA Hospital and Greater Good Science Center. Craig, thanks for joining us. Good to be here, Ben. And finally, Dr. Nusheen Razani is a pediatrician and researcher at UCSF Benioff Children's Hospital. Nusheen, thanks for taking the time. Thank you for having us. Stacy. let's start off with your story. I think it provides a really good example of the implications of what we'll be talking about today. Uh, you spent several years in the military. We talked a lot about your story uh, in a previous episode of Mountain Meister. You suffered some symptoms of PTSD uh, at that time, what kind of therapy were you prescribed? During my time when I was seeking out treatment for what I ultimately recognize as post-traumatic stress disorder, you know, I was asked to do what a lot of veterans are asked to do, and it was seek out uh, group therapy counseling oftentimes, you know, or which is a derivative of or part of cognitive behavioral therapy or CBT and then there was also an opportunity to go into prolonged exposure therapy, or PET, if there was a specific incident. And, it, and a lot of times, post-traumatic stress is diagnosed to a specific incident. And prolonged exposure therapy is this idea that if you just go through that incident over and over, at, over time, that that incident will no longer have impact on you. And did that and, work? Well, I... I I was very hesitant from what I had read about PET to do PET and group talk therapy wasn't working for me and uh, one-on-one talk therapy, I wasn't in a place where I was willing to engage in one-on-one talk therapy. Ultimately, I had stopped going to therapy for, at, 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 the, at the time I started climbing, I had been out of therapy for about 
almost 18 months and was interested in ending my life or going back into the military. And it was a friend who said, well, wait a week and come out, climb with me and climb with me. And it was climbing that I really believe got me to a point where I could be in the moment and find joy and find goodness and look forward to something, have something to look forward to and, and not feel as guilty about moving on from the war. And there's a host of other things that were going on in my body that, uh, Craig and Nusheen can talk about more about what, what actually happens and why some of those feelings, more positive feelings get in the way and, and, and allow you to kind of move on with your life. But so I started working on that and getting other people outdoors and other veterans. And then ultimately, you know, working at, at Sierra club outdoors, working with youth and communities and uh, many vulnerable communities as well, or communities that had and were facing challenges. And I kept getting to this point and wondering, well, how do we scale this and how do we scale this? And one of the ways I think we can scale this is through making sure that this is, is a clinical health intervention because there are loads of benefits and real scientific benefits to time outside. And I kept talking about it and people said, you need to do the research, you need to do the research. Mm-hmm. And that's where this has started is just kind of, for me, as I delved into this research and trying to figure out who the smart people were that were doing these things, um, I've been able to meet folks like Craig and Nusheen who are doing incredible research and incredible work. And um, it's like standing in a forest of redwoods and looking up at Craig and looking up at Nusheen and seeing the great work they're doing and just being excited to be part of their company. And um, not only can you find awe in the outdoors, but I certainly find awe um, just to spend time and to be able to work with folks like Craig and Nusheen. So Craig, let's go to you. Can you, can you talk more about what you do and, uh, how it relates to what Stacy, uh, Stacy's story is? Certainly. Um, <clears throat> so I was part of a research group, uh, at UC Berkeley in the psychology department. Um, while I was getting my PhD, I was studying the emotion of awe. Um, for such a cool state, um, you know, that people like to talk about and are really interested in. Um, six years ago, we really didn't know a whole lot about awe uh, empirically. So one of the first findings that was really obvious uh, came from just asking people to talk about, you know, tell us about a time from your own life that you experienced intense awe and, you know, 60, 70% of the time, people would tell us about uh, being in the outdoors in nature. Um, so the link between awe and nature uh, was really obvious to us right away. Um, <clears throat> and that's kind of what led to us getting the attention of Stacy and our fruitful collaboration that followed. So you said, did you say 60 to 70% of uh, what people classified as awe was in the outdoors? That's right. So just their, their personal narratives of the time in their life that they experienced awe. Um, obviously, you get people talking about birth of a child, um, maybe some art, music, architecture stuff, but the majority of the narratives we found had to do with being in the outdoors. Huh. And I, I guess a very basic question, like what what is awe? Do you have like a, a phrase that captures what awe is? Yeah, um, I would say colloquially speaking, it's um, being in the, in the presence of something vast that blows your mind in the moment. Hmm. 
And how, how does one feel, I guess? Are we talking like goosebumps? Yeah, um, we actually have someone in the lab at Berkeley who studies goosebumps. Um, and in fact, that seems to be one of the physiological uh, sensations that people often associate with experiences of awe. Um, and it's kind of neat if you talk to, you know, primatologists, people who do animal behavior, um, if you look at, like, gorillas that are near big waterfalls, um, they'll actually pilo erect, the hair will go up on the back of their neck. So that seems to be a response that we share with our, uh, with our close relatives. When do you feel awe, Craig? Well, uh, for me, um, I grew up as a Boy Scout in New Mexico. Uh, I was fortunate to spend a lot of time in the outdoors myself. Um, so obviously nature does it for me a lot, and <clears throat> actually outer space, too. So looking up at the stars, you know, when you're away from the light pollution in the cities, um, thinking about how vast the cosmos is and how tiny we are and how much there is to explore, uh, really gets uh, me feeling a lot of awe. I was trying to think of the a time when I felt it, and uh, I go back to 2014, and uh, this year, 2014, I ran the New York City Marathon, and this year, I ran the Sugarloaf Marathon, and in both instances, I um, had to drive to the start line, and I remember that feeling of if you've ever driven the course that you're about to run 26.2 mile, 26. miles on, uh, that's very intimidating. And I think that's what I was feeling is kind of awe at this challenge that was awaiting me. Does that sound right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the vastness of that challenge that you were going to undertake, um, definitely. That could elicit awe, sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I also want to point out really yeah. quickly too, and Craig and I have, and, and Nusheen, we've all had conversations about this. It, it isn't even always that big, huge thing that can promote awe. And I think that's one of the things that our, our research is showing and highlighting and one of the things we really want to bring out, not just about awe, but the power of outdoors generally, but that it's also really possible to have awe just, you know, looking at a flower, uh, you know, looking out your window at a, at a tree and marveling at the tree and allowing yourself to feel that awe. So I think people can find awe and feel awe in a lot of different ways. And I think one of the things we do a really great job of in the outdoor industry is promoting these big grand vistas like Yosemite, like the Grand Tetons, like Acadia National Park. And, and that's fantastic and that's all true. But we can also find um, awe in our everyday lives and, and out of our front doors and, and just around the block. Very important. And later in the conversation, we'll talk about making sure that this public health solution is is available to all. And I think that's what you're getting at there, Stacy. Nusheen, you've prescribed nature to your patients. Uh, and we've talked a lot about awe and the outdoors and now nature. And there's obviously a lot of crossing in those disciplines, but they're not the same thing. Can you comment on kind of the differences and how you fit into the equation here? Sure. Um, there's increasing literature on the health benefits of nature. And it's been clear that stress reduction or helping um, buffer the effects of trauma is one of the ways that nature helps um, improve health. And whether you measure that by looking at awe or looking at outcomes in PTSD, um, it looks like there's some 
benefit to stress and trauma. Um, and so how I fit into the equation is taking that amazing research and amazing work that people like Stacy and Craig are doing and really figuring out what that means for me when I'm interfacing with a patient. What, what do we talk about? What do I ask them about? What do I screen them for? What am I treating? What am I prescribing? Um, and so I'm doing research on that end. And I mean, I, I came to this much like Stacy and sounds like Craig too, just through my personal experiences, um, with trauma, really. I was a subspecialist in infectious diseases. Um, looking at HIV, and 10 years ago I had children, and I suddenly realized that I needed to do my own personal healing, and that the way I was going to do that was through nature and health. Um, I'm from an immigrant family. I'm, I was born in the U.S., but my family's from Iran in the Middle East, and I've moved back and forth, and I realized after I had children that I have this internalized trauma, both in my experiences being an other in the U.S. and also my experiences in Iran. And so nature was very important for my own healing. And I find that when I speak with my own patients, stress and trauma is present for everyone. Modern life is incredibly stressful. And it is unbelievable that being near a tree or being in a public space around other people and not being isolated could be part of the, the solution to something that's affecting all of us. I guess, so, so you do work with a, an international clinic full of refugees who are probably experiencing some of that other feeling that you talked about there. What, what do you do? Do you, do you take them into outdoors areas? Yeah, I think, I mean, part of the, the beauty of medicine is that you really do what you can for each patient depending on where they are. And so it can range from just talking to people about what they're facing. And if they're facing loneliness and isolation and, and trauma, then just being able to tell them that there are public spaces and being able to be very explicit that they are welcome in those public spaces, that parks and nature belong to all of us and that they're welcome there. And sometimes even just that discussion is healing. Um, the next step up would be to give maps and actual uh, descriptions on how to get there. And then the final piece that we have in our clinic is we do have a monthly shuttle where um, patients meet at our clinic and we go out of doors together um, where we eat a meal and really we're just present for each other outside. To me, it sounds like the outdoors is a, a platform to do this, but it isn't, it's not the mechanism, I guess. There's, there are other, as long as you are feeling part of a community, that's the important part in the outdoors uh, provides a, a good way to do that? I think that in my work, nature is integral to the whole thing. Mm. And people are teasing this out, and I'm sure Craig can speak to this, but they're trying to figure out what, what it is about nature. Um, they've kind of broken it up into the fact that you're with other people, the fact that you're physically active, the fact that maybe you're in silence or you're around good air. But then there is a separate factor that's just the fact that it's nature. And 
Some people call that the green effect or the added value of greenness. Some people look at blue space, which is the effect of water. But there is something that is about nature. And in terms of what I'm working on, which is the social component and feeling connected, I think that a tree can provide social support. And I think that space or place is a relationship that a person or a child or a family can have. So, yes, it's important to be around other humans, but knowing that you belong in an outside space and with other life forms is also a form of support. Actually, I think other people sometimes get in the way. So the nature is is very important to the experience. I saw that you have pictures of huge trees inside of the hospital. Yeah, we have. When we started the work, we thought that people would have a hard time getting outside. And so we asked our park district to bring nature into the parks. And they put up 18-foot posters of redwoods, um, which is, has a great benefit. I have since found out that people will find, can find nature. And um, I really want to echo what Stacy said, that they can find moments of beauty and connection, even not in a park, but just in whatever um, urban space they have near them, they can find nature. Absolutely. Craig, I want to go to you now to talk about this rafting trip experiment, which I have found so interesting. I watched your talk. Can you tell us a little bit about this and why you chose uh, rafting? Well, um, to be perfectly honest, we didn't choose rafting, uh, so to speak. Um, When we got connected with Stacy, he he told us, hey, we have these great programs in the Bay Area that get people in the outdoors. Um, Why don't you come along and see if you can collect some data on them? Um, And it just so happens that the Sierra Club ICO program, Inspiring Connections Outdoors, um, their activity, uh, they're all over the U.S., but what they do in the Bay Area uh, is take people whitewater rafting. Um, so in that regard, um, we didn't choose whitewater rafting, uh, but I will say that it's been uh, a fantastic context to, one, study awe. Um, I mean, half of the youth from underserved communities that went out whitewater rafting had never done anything like that before in their lives. Um, So that's a great way to study awe, uh, first off. But also, it's a really kind of nice group context. So people are in rafts, they're working together to kind of um, meet a common goal, which is, you know, getting through the rapids safely. Um, so it's just a rich context to study social interactions and emotion expression. Um, so we ended up being really fortunate in having this great context to conduct our research. And something really important in research is controlling for, uh, well, the chaos in this case uh, with rafting. Can you talk about uh, some of the controls that rafting provides? I'm thinking specifically it's not, uh, you can kind of tease out exercise, right? We can eliminate exercise here. Um, well, uh, the short answer is we don't control the chaos. Huh. Um, but the longer answer is that that actually, uh, works in our favor. How so? Um, so, I mean, I will say that the work we've done so far, uh, has not been experimental. 
uh, in, in the, you know, strict sense that we're not recruiting people, assigning some people to go whitewater rafting, and then assigning other people to do something else, like an exercise intervention, as you suggested, or anything like that. So, I mean, we're in the process of getting more funding, and that's exactly what we want to do, and we can talk about that later. Um, so, really, what we're looking at is kind of uh, repeated measures. So, we, uh, you know, measure people's well-being before the trip and then measure it again afterwards. Um, so, it's a, it's a different study design, but it still can give us really important uh, information about, for example, the emotions that people feel and how that impacts their well-being. Um, and the nice thing about this naturalistic environment is that the findings that we do find, we can be, be fairly certain they hold up um, as opposed to, you know, really strictly controlled artificial uh, laboratory environments where, you know, you might find something, but it's not going to generalize to other people um, doing other things perhaps in their daily lives. So um, the fact that we find things in such a diverse sample um, in such an uncontrolled environment actually lends uh, some confidence to our findings. Hmm. So what did you what did you find and how, and how are you measuring awe? Well, um, <clears throat> when we're measuring emotions, we kind of use a converging approach. Um, the most important, maybe, and the easiest way to ask people about the emotions they feel, uh, because emotions have strong subjective components. Okay. Um, and then we use that in addition to videotaping. Um, so we have GoPro cameras that are suction cut to the front of the raft looking back at the participants, um, and then we go through that footage and do what's called behavior coding. Um, so, you know, are people smiling? Are they laughing? Are they expressing awe in their face and voice? Um, and that kind of uh, gives us, you know, an expressive component to these emotions. Um, and the final piece is physiological. Uh, so we actually collect saliva before and after the rafting trip to see how hormones change, and we also uh, do some genotyping as well. Um, and so we're looking at cortisol, which, um, you know, has been implicated in, uh, you know, responses to threats and stress processes. Um, so how that might change as well also gives us information about, um, you know, the emotions that people are feeling. Um, so... In an ideal world, those three different channels, subjective reports, expressive emotion, and then the physio level all sort of converge uh, and tell us the same story. And is that what happened here? Um, it does look like it's happening. So um, right now, I mean, we're still analyzing data from our last uh our last rafting season, which was this 2016 season. Um, but for example, um, when people are screaming in fear, um, they report more fear at the end of the, uh, the trip. And it also is reflected in their cortisol levels. So, um, so far so good. Uh, I, I want to throw in really quick, Ben, that 
you brought in a note about exercise. I mean, one of the reasons that we use rafting so much is because we want to make sure that people, we can get the most people outside most of the time. And, you know, you can get a lot of people on a raft. It creates a community environment and it doesn't necessarily require a significant amount of physical activity or physical wellness even to really, really enjoy a rafting trip. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's one of the big reasons why, you know, we thought we wanted to do this activity. Low barriers to entry. Now, that's correct. Uh, I, I want to bring up uh, what we talked about earlier is making all of this very accessible. And I saw in one of your talks, Stacey, I found it fascinating how you said we have these gaps in our healthcare system now. And if this is to become something greater uh, with nature advancing public health, we need to make sure that those gaps don't exist. And, you know, uh, honestly, the way that the participation rates look right now in uh, the outdoors, that is a real concern. So how do we make sure that that doesn't happen? Well, I think the first thing around, you know, looking at this from a public and clinical health perspective I think helps with that, right? And, and it's a two-pronged approach. I'm, the first is making sure that we have really strong evidence about time in the outdoors being a real health provider. And that's everything from the psychology work that Craig and the team are doing at Greater Good Science Center and making sure that everybody understands that to getting doctors on board like Machine, who's been a phenomenal partner in this and we're hoping to do you know clinical trials with time outside um, and the benefit of time outside with some of the clinics and, and partners that that she has in blending this all together. And I think that really drives the conversation and it drives the conversation around health and it helps um, people to recognize that our public lands are our nation's greatest public health system. And that's something that we need to continue to think about as we move forward in the next four years, especially as we want to make sure that communities and groups of people feel safe feel cared for and feel like they really are a part of America. And I think the best way to do that is through time outside. And I think never before in our history has this been so critically important. As we're pushing on that, I think what also begins to happen is more and more healthcare companies and insurance companies like Kaiser Permanente, like Unity Health, like um, like Humana are looking at and saying, well, what can we do to prescribe parks? And they're looking at park prescriptions by and large as a, as a, preventative health measure. And what we're talking about with the clinical trials is Mm -hmm. we want to make sure that if somebody says, you know, goes to the doctor and says, well, I have trauma or the doctor says, yep, you definitely have trauma. Then an actual prescription ensures that maybe my copay or my, my actual prescription gets me on a rafting trip in the same way that my prescription could get me, um, medication right now. Instead, it gets me a rafting trip and instead of, or, or in part with, uh, alongside some of that medication, I think it, it needs to be one of those frontline things, uh, that people look at not as an alternative treatment, but as a frontline treatment. And, and you said that I think so eloquently at the beginning, um, what'd you say, uh, instead of milligrams of yeah, Xanax, Xanax in Yosemite. in Yosemite. And so I, I think that's coming and, and I think we're going to steal that as a tagline. So appreciate, <laughs> appreciate that. Yeah. And I think the other thing that we really have to push on as well is thinking about, you know, city and state policies around that and what does it mean? And some of the things that we've talked about and that I think we'll see in the, in the coming years around that access, oftentimes it's just letting people know where the green space is and that it is available to them and it is theirs. And so that's some of the education stuff Machine talked about 
I think one of the things we'd like to see, I'd like to see as an urban designer and, and as somebody who now has a child as well and cares deeply about this is that when you're walking out of your clinic, when you're walking out of your school, let's begin to think of that as a trailhead and let's put the resources there so that as you're walking out the door, you say, oh, wow, you know what? Just five minute walk from here is this great park or open space or just a 10 minute walk from here is a bus stop that can get me to this really wonderful park. And so that we begin to reorient in just little ways how we see the world around us. And so that when we're walking out of our schools and our clinics, that that's the trailhead. That's part of the trailhead. Um, and then, of course, we need to have, you know, investment, private and public investment in this work across the board to making sure that our public lands are safe and usable, to make sure that we have strong public transit and access to these places and that we can do the research that's necessary so that we can compete with um, other forms of medication that are out there. So as you mentioned the insurance companies, this is, this is more cost effective, isn't it? I would think so. I would definitely think this is a lot more cost effective. One of the things that's coming up next, right, is figuring out how we bend that cost curve down. Uh, and I think as you will see more and more insurance companies moving in a model like Kaiser, uh, where there is a incentive on preventative care, you're, you're going to see this across the board. And, and, and that, that this is something that people want to adapt, if nothing else, because it, it benefits the bottom line. Um, my parents live in West Virginia and West Virginia announced that the future of their state is in healthcare and tourism. And I think in the future, what we're going to see is, is that that's healthcare and healthcare, right? I mean, that tourism, that outdoor tourism is absolutely a part of that um, economic benefit that we're going to see. And, and I think we're going to grow the outdoor economy and the outdoor economy and the public health economy, the healthcare economy are going to really intersect. Um, and I think you'll totally see um, a decrease in our overall care costs. And, and that's something that should incite anybody. I mean, I think the great thing about this is, is that this is a truly nonpartisan way to address health concerns across the board that save money, that improve communities, uh, and that improves health. And then all the other ancillary benefits that we see of time outside, right? I mean, you're more creative, you're, you know, you're, you're able to focus. If you're spending time outside, when you come back inside, you can focus more on your work or on your school. Um, so it, Sometimes I wonder if it's just such a simple solution that that people are hesitant to embrace it. So that's that's what I'm getting at here because you don't need to convince me. You know, I I I get it. I've I find awe in the outdoors. Uh, what I wonder, maybe Craig or Nushin can comment on this. It's like because all of this stuff seems so simple. I'm wondering if like if people aren't always that excited about it. I guess like is is when a prescription, when it's more technologically complex, is that more attractive for some reason? I can try to address that. Mm -hmm. um, I think, I mean, I think first of all, really what's happening with the movement to bring um, public lands and the outdoors into clinical care should be seen in a, in a broader context in clinical medicine um, to really understand that health starts outside of the clinic walls. And so while we're having this conversation right now about the outdoors, there are others in public health who are talking about food equity, access to housing, um, poverty, and other issues that we call the social determinants of health and how they impact what actually happens in the clinical interaction. And it's clear that if clinicians don't step outside of the clinic walls and actually 
work with clinical part with community partners on those other lifestyle and social determinants of health that we really won't be able to be effective um, during the uh, patient doctor interaction. Mm. And so I would say that over the last, you know, five to 10 years, the barrier between the idea of prevention and treatment is really starting to blur. And that's because we're recognizing that how people live, where they live, where they play, where they grow, where they prayed, all impacts clinical care. Um, and so that is to that the fact that that movement is happening is to our benefit because we are articulating in clinical medicine how to ask patients about social issues and lifestyle issues and how to then quote unquote prescribe changes in an effective way and i think you know the question of whether or not this is cost effective or whether people will be excited about it or do it i think partly has to do with how well we articulate what we're talking about. Mm. Because when you say it, you know, we have mentioned lots of different things during this conversation. Do we mean whitewater rafting trips? Do we mean a public health intervention to plant trees on every city block? Um, or do we mean clinical outings like the ones that I do? And so what's, you know, what I think Stacy and Craig and I are kind of coming together to do is some of the studies that not only show if it's effective, but actually just try to explain what we mean by it. So what is the intervention? And in, in our, we did a randomized controlled trial looking at two kinds of interventions. And one is just your physician screening you for outdoor time and talking to you about it and then telling you you should go outside versus all of that counseling plus an actual bus taking you to the outdoors. And so, you know, it's studies like that where we compare different interventions and then we see what happens and then later take them to scale and then actually ask whether or not it is cost effective. I think that's the way that we will find out if we can change policy is by doing the studies and then actually showing whether or not it's cost effective. Do you have any initial findings with that randomized control trial? Well, I mean, we found that yes, the doctor's office is absolutely a viable place to work on outdoor behavior. I mean, really being, spending time in the outdoors can be thought of as the same as changing your diet or exercising. It's a behavior that we're trying to change. And what we found is that Everybody in our study, depending on, uh, regardless of which arm they were um, allocated to, everyone improved in their stress, in their loneliness, in their physical activity. Um, and for children, we measured BMI. Um, what we also found is that there really wasn't a different between, difference between the two groups. Hmm. And so um, the group who got the extra support did have increased um benefit in loneliness so they got um they were less lonely than the others that just had the doctor telling them where to go um, but we did not find we found that both groups got better craig in the rafting study what were your results there and maybe your measurable results well one of the samples we haven't talked as i haven't talked as much about is military veterans so we've been doing this work for three rafting season now um, in 2015, we recruited uh, mostly, but we also started 
uh, recruiting military veterans as well. And then in this final um, summer, we've been, uh, we recruited exclusively uh, military veterans. And so we're, we're still working on the third summer's data, but from that little pilot we did uh, in 2015, um, the levels of PTSD that veterans self-reported uh, went down over 30%. Uh, which was a figure that uh, shocked me. Um, and then, you know, generally speaking, in the youth, um, satisfaction with life uh, gets better. People are reporting sleeping better. Um, and this is a one-week follow-up that we do with people um, <clears throat> online. And so, you know, one of the big questions is how long do these benefits last? Um, so that's why we're interested in scaling this research up um, and so that we can make recommendations like, well, okay, we should get outdoors. How often should we do it? You know, what activities should we be doing? So that's what we're in pursuit of. 30% decrease in PTSD symptoms. That's right. How, uh, what other treatments provide that, that sort of impact? Uh... Well, I, I don't, I'm not, you know, a PTSD researcher. Stacey, do you know, um, can you, do you know any, any other sort of treatment like that, that has that impact? No. Okay. No. And I think that's one of the things that's so amazing about the work. And I think it's one of the real reasons, like Nusheen pointed out, we have to figure out what the it is. Right, right. Interesting. But it, it should be enough to really convince people that this is something we want to continue studying and, and researching so that we can really figure out what the it is because there's, there's nothing else that I'm aware of that can be this powerful. And you could look back through thousands of years of literature from spiritual literature, uh, you know, the basis of most of the major religions in the world, their prophets and their gods spend time in the outdoors and now we know we have a little bit of understanding why. And that is that, you know, you're healthier when you're outside. I want to close uh, with maybe a call to action to our listeners, how they can get involved. Uh, before I do that, do you have any other uh, comments that you want to say? Um, I do want to also just throw out there that physicians and the medical community are also allies in advocating for the outdoors. So while, you know, we are working on figuring out how the outdoors can help health, it is also important for people in the outdoors to figure out how people in medicine can be useful to you. And, um, you know, the presence of the outdoors is important for human health. And so clinicians can be of use in ways other than writing prescriptions. And if that's in advocacy or other arenas. Yeah, and, and along with that is we really need to recognize the holistic nature of health and break through these barriers that I think we sometimes set up. And, you know, in our education system, right, I mean, it's, it's, it's difficult once you're on that medical path. Are you going to spend time or how do you have interactions with folks who are full-time outdoor guides and how do those folks interact with the psychology PhD folks and so I think looking at this from that angle, right, and seeing people as allies and as opportunities for allies, 
as opposed to kind of segmenting things out is how we're going to get to, you know, the 90% of people that we need. Um, we don't necessarily need more people doing ski mountaineering and big, crazy rock climbs. If that's what they want to do, that is really fantastic. And I'm excited for them and, and want to support them in that endeavor. What most people are going to be at and what most people are going to want to do is just go to your local park and, and maybe, you know, um, there's kind of a pyramid of activity and engagement and some people are going to want to go trek in the Himalayas. Um, but most people are just going to want to spend time in their regional parks. And, and that's what we really need to be pursuing as well as that 90% that that's the most agreeable and acceptable to the, to the widest amount of folks. Um, and to make sure that we aren't reinforcing a hierarchy on time outdoors that doesn't need to be there. How can our listeners get involved? Let's start with you, Stacey. They can get involved in a number of ways. The first would be to share the message of what we're doing and to begin talking about their own outdoor experiences and thinking about their own outdoor experiences through the lens of health. Um, to talk to their, when they when they buy outdoor gear, when they shop at their, their favorite local brands and favorite local stores and stores and brands to say, hey, how are you all involved in healthcare and getting people outdoors as a type of healthcare? So ask those questions, spread that information. They can uh, donate to the to the research and what they're doing at Sierra Club Outdoors. They can get involved at Greater and sign up at Greater Good Science Center, um, and they can ask their physicians when they go in. They can begin to demand this and speak with their physicians openly and honestly about it and say, "What are you doing? Like, what what are the benefits of if, if I go outside? What are we doing at this clinic? What are we doing at this hospital um, to get outside?" So I think the the main thing is to start spreading awareness and having those conversations absolutely everywhere. Very good. Craig and Nusheen, anything to add to that? People can get involved in their own health by being out of doors in their local settings and noticing each other and making them settings where everyone belongs. Um, and in terms of being involved in the clinical research, I would be happy to help anybody who wants to either be involved in analyzing and writing about the data we've already gathered or if they're interested in doing work where they are. They're welcome to contact um, me and my hospital. And it's, it's, I just want to encourage everyone because it is a new field. And so there is no set way to do it. But that's not something that should deter any young scientist or young outdoors person. That should just be really exciting mm -hmm. because it's a very creative time and a time that you can really do anything as long as you document it and you're systematic and it's research. Craig, anything? Yeah, you know, kind of riffing on something Stacy mentioned, um, as the Great Outdoors Lab, you know, we've kind of been getting steam. Um, one of the big things we've been doing is just raising awareness about this and connecting people um, who are interested in the outdoors and how it impacts health. Uh, and even researchers who've been doing kind of their own research, but they're in their silo and they haven't been commuting with, uh, communicating with other researchers. Um, and I've been particularly excited about the possibility of citizen science, right? Mm -hmm. So if you have a group, if you take out hiking uh, in a regional park or, or kayaking or whatever, like um, we, can, we can collect data on that, right? You can do like a simple survey before and after. You know, it's not a big flashy study with, hormones and genotyping, but, um, I mean, that's helping us create this, this pool of knowledge to kind of make our case for 
uh, public lands as part of our healthcare system. Yeah, we hear. I hear so often that uh, people really want to help out in their time outdoors. I do some work with uh, big city mountaineers, and uh, a lot of our listeners have wanted to fundraise for that organization. And everybody's always looking to contribute and help out. Uh, what an excellent way to contribute for uh, in in helping out with this research, like you just said. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, it doesn't cost anything to fill out a survey, real quick. Yeah. Maybe we can even get some GoPros going on your trip. Yeah, yeah, right? I think that's a great idea. Yeah, and we're pretty excited. There's some other work that we're doing that, you know, to, to build out a mobile app that everybody can participate in a little bit easier if that's one way to do it. But I also, you know, I really want to underline what Nasheen said is, first of all, get outside yourself, like figure out where your parks are and how to get to your parks and, and be a park evangelist and spend some time outside. And, and that really... This is wide open. I mean, we don't we want more and more people to be doing this type of work. And, you know, if you're a med student or a student somewhere, get involved. It, it, your psychology student, get involved and sit and start taking people outside and figuring out how it might work there. Think of new ways that, that we haven't thought of yet. I mean, we're all, um, you, you know, there's we have our way of doing it and and there's millions of other ways of doing it. So let's let's get out there and let's. You know, this is an opportunity to really collaborate. There's no, there's no competition in turning the outdoors into healthcare and making <laughs> sure right. people see the outdoors as healthcare. This is not competitive. This is not us trying to bring a new drug to market faster than the next company. This is just all like, right. all right, like this is your way. This is our way. Let's get this out as quickly as possible so that it can be prescriptions in time outside and, and better advocacy and, and people just doing it and hospitals and schools turning into these vibrant trailheads and your local outdoor store turning into, you know, pharmacy, that's the pharmacy, right? I mean, how amazing would it be if there was a, a an outdoor shop, you know, if, if all those, if CVS all of a sudden became an outdoor company, I mean, that's, that's what we're driving at, right? Is that level of engagement and, and to do that requires all of us. And it requires everything from birding to mountaineering, to park walking, to urban gardening, to, uh, you know, farming out, you know, and, and getting people involved from rural areas to cities. And, and I think it is that one thing that can really unite people and where people really get to know each other, like way beyond the medical benefits. Although there's huge medical benefits, right, to community and, and to getting to know people and, and, and having something to look forward to. And I think if anybody spent time in the outdoors, one of the things I'll always tell you is the number of great people they meet who they never otherwise would have had a chance to meet. And, and I think that's, you know, the community thing is just as important in a lot of ways as the overall, you know, medical benefit of being in time outside is the community that you build outdoors and, and how that sustains and can grow over time. And I think now more than ever, uh, that's what we need. I appreciate all of you taking the time. I know uh, you're hard at work and this is really, really exciting. I've enjoyed speaking with all of you. So thank you so much. Thank you. What an important topic. Thank you All right. for having Thanks us. Thanks for having us, Ben. Hey, thanks for joining. Hope you enjoyed that episode. We have some pretty impressive minds working on this movement. If you'd like to be a part of it and contribute, like we talked about at the end, send me an email, ben at mtnmeister.com. I'll connect you with our guests. All of pictures and videos of the rafting trip, as well as anything else we talked about, and more talks from Stacy. Craig and Nusheen posted to this episode's page. That's at mountainmeister.com. 
Buy a Mountain Meister t-shirt if you want. I have a whole stack of them in the studio. They're wrapped up. I swear I haven't worn any of them, except for my own, of course, which I wear all the time. Boss requires strict dress code. Meister Casual. As usual, I hope you enjoy doing the rest of whatever you do while you listen to the podcast that explores the minds of those who explore. I'm your host, Ben Shank. Thanks for listening to Mountain Meister. Mountain Meister.